The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. I'm Paul Rudy. Happy to be here today. We're not going to have our video today, so people won't. There won't be as much illness in Champaign-Urbana. They don't have to look at me on uh, Facebook Live. We're just not <laughs> working out for some reason today. Technical difficulties. We'll get that fixed for next show. I'm here with Certified Financial Planner and Retirement Income Certified Professional David Rudy and Financial Advisor Ryan Repko. Both of these guys work with me at Rudy Wealth Management. No Dr. Fred Gertz today, guys. He did let us know a couple weeks ago that he wouldn't be here, so uh, uh, Fred will be missed. You can... Text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can call in with your questions at 356-9397. We're always happy to take your calls. We got a number of them last week, We or last show. Enjoyed those. Uh, we want to also, well, I was going to welcome people tuning in on Facebook Live, but as I just said, that won't be there. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, welcome, guys. Uh, interest rates keep ticking up. I've noticed. I would probably be asking Dr. Fred some of these questions today, <laughs> and we're not going to get too much into that other than uh, that does seem to be the uh reason du jour that people are you know worried about the stock market that oh this you know higher interest rates compete with stocks and uh, probably overplayed a hand but you know we have seen the 10-year treasury now go to its highest yield it's around three and a quarter percent i think the last i looked maybe 3.28 percent keep in mind you know it wasn't too long ago we were at one and a half percent so obviously this is it's giving the pundits and the professional bad news bears out there uh, you know, they're starting their list, 10 reasons to get out of the stock market today. And, uh, and it's just interesting, the excitement just last Friday because the stock market was down almost 1%. Everybody was all <laughs> 1% from all-time <laughs> highs. Yeah, yeah, David. And I, since Dr. Gertz isn't here, I feel compelled to give the warning that he almost always does when we talk about interest rates rising is, you know, yeah, interest rates are probably going to be going up, but you have to keep, keep in mind that that's probably already baked into uh, current market prices. So, you know, anything that's known in advance, like expectations of the future are going to be baked into the current market prices. So if you are worried about something, chances are it's too late to do anything about it. And, you know, we're not the only three people that know that interest rates are ticking up. Exactly. Uh, and of course, and I think if Dr. Fred was here, he would say, well, it's kind of a good news, bad news. The good news is, yeah, I mean, the bad news is, yes, interest rates are rising. Now that's good for savers. Savers are happy, uh, though it doesn't really put them in that it does get a little bit better than it was, uh, but inflation's ticked up at the same time. So if you really look at on savings accounts, et cetera, uh, this isn't a pro or con, it's just an observation. Uh, yes, your yield is up, your interest that the bank is paying you or money market funds paying you, but of course, inflation is eating into that return at the same time. The good news is that they were have higher interest rates because, and, and Jerome Powell, who's the Federal Reserve Chairman last week, kind of got everybody excited a little bit because he said, oh, you know, we're, we need to move to a neutral interest rate target. Uh, I might get into that more in a bit. And basically just signaling that, you know, we've, we've come from a very accommodative, we want to get to a neutral where we're not accommodative, we're not tightening. Uh, and that seems to be a sensible strategy, one where you're not really, inflation's not increasing uh, and not so high is that you're really hurting the economy and employment uh, too much. And, and a lot of people would take a, a neutral interest rate on a 10-year treasury, for example, to be equivalent of the gross domestic pro uh, product. Uh, 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 yeah, gross domestic GDP. <laughs> uh, for some reason, I was second-guessing myself because it used to be called the gross national product, and that popped into my mind. Uh, and, and net, I mean, not net of inflation, but in a nominal sense, uh, which is probably running at around uh, four and a half, five percent right now. So, you know, a neutral rate for a ten-year Treasury that now is around three and a quarter might be four percent, four and a quarter percent. It's not exactly doesn't exactly track that, and considering that. Tax rates really have only had about half a year's impact. Uh, 
you know, earnings are expected to still be up 20% by the end of this year, you know, for the full year and another 10% next year. So that's even a moving target for neutral interest rates. So interest rates could go up quite a bit more, and, and I don't see any, you know, risk of uh, the Fed outrunning itself at the moment. Yep. Yeah, right. And I think this is something Dr. Fred alluded to last time when we talked. He said, oh, for sure, the you know, in his Dr. Fred voice, oh, for sure, the market you know, it's going to go up. The sure. yeah, yeah. interest rates are going to go up. But um, it's it's a little bit of a sign that the the economy is stabilizing. It's strengthening a little bit uh, that the Fed shows they can raise the interest rates. It gives them a tool in their back pocket. Should we go into something really terrible in the future? They now have the ability to back rates down as they're right now currently creeping them up a little bit to get them back to a little bit higher place it is a tool for them to use in the future yeah and i think dr fred's talked about that in other words uh you know if we can get 10-year treasury or short-term fed funds rate which now is two and a quarter but if we can get that up even higher and you know at some point we go in they so why there's a reason guys they call it the cycle it's an economic cycle and we will eventually go into a, a recession of some sort uh you know there's, there's some views that you know the stock market is so overvalued. Uh, one of uh, the leading Harvard folks uh, said that out, just wrote an article, and I can't remember his name. Uh, someone who's kind of famous, Feldstein maybe, and saying, suggesting that the stock market is more overvalued or as, or as overvalued as the housing market was back in 2005. And just to remind people, uh, I think a good way to think about the fair value for housing is kind of what would the economic rents be if you rented out the housing and it certainly was way over at skis the housing market based on that metric and that's just one metric and of course we had a huge decline in housing the housing stock uh over that time but to suggest the stock market that's now trading at a forward pe of around 22 that's by the way the the 40-year average and again uh, if we really look at future earnings, the way I look at it, and I don't know if anybody's interested, uh, but when I start hearing famous people saying the stock market is as overvalued as, and we think about the cataclysmic you know, housing crisis, I just have to say I just can't really get in front of that one because, as I said, we have the tax you know, cuts have not played themselves out, so we're still going to have much higher earnings for the rest of the year. We're going to have higher earnings projected next year of about 10%. So that would take us on a forward price-to-earnings ratio of around 16, 16 and a half. That's right in line with, with uh, historical uh, P.E. ratios. So in other words, the stock market would have to go up 10% just to get to historical 20% P.E. ratio. Well, and I think you have to ask yourself, let's say he's right and the stock market is overvalued, whatever you know metric you use to determine that. The question that, that you need to ask after that is, so what? Like yeah. What am I supposed irrelevant. to? What am I supposed to do with that information? Right. Are you going to tell me a, a strategy for exactly when to sell out of the market when it's going to actually decline? Because there's always the likelihood and, and chance that, yeah, it's overvalued now. It continues to be more and more overvalued for the next several years. People in 1995 thought the market was extremely overvalued. If you go back, you look at the headlines of different financial right. uh, news outlets. They were saying the same stuff, and then you have astronomical returns for the next five years so it's one of those things it's even if he's right it's still not that helpful it's not to usable. investors yeah and you know <laughs> i i think back to my 35 years uh, of doing this and when i first got into this business the dow had just finally broken a thousand stayed above 1000 the dow jones industrial average for the first time uh and that was in the very early 80s and uh and I just remember when the Dow finally went from like a thousand to fifteen hundred. And I to keep in mind fifteen hundred. Uh, just about every potential client or everybody I talked to said, "Well, they can't get into the stock market now because it's overvalued." And everybody, so the stock market for the last thirty-five years I've been in this business has been overvalued constantly by the pundits. It's always going to crash. The Federal Reserve, you know, or our federal debt is going to take us into the apocalypse. In other words, there's, there's been one eloquent reason after another to avoid the partial ownership of the great companies of America and the world. And keep in mind, you know, the Dow goes from 1,000 to almost 27,000 over that time period. And that understates the wealth creation that's really happened along the way with reinvested dividends. People wouldn't even, they wouldn't even believe it if you, if you showed them what, you know, 10,000 or $100,000 in 1982 or 1984 would be worth today if you bought something as simple as the Vanguard total stock market index. So I would bring that up just because people do react. Um, people do pay attention to the headlines. Uh, and, you know, that's the mission of the, the financial media is to get people to 
In other words, you're not you're they're not going to run you on CNBC today if you say, you know, the stock market's probably undervalued if anything, but certainly it's not overvalued. And yeah, we probably will have a recession at some point, though nobody seems to to, to agree when or we won't know how deep it is, et cetera. Or you really won't, sorry, you really won't get on CNBC if your opinion is okay, well, market valuations really aren't that relevant to your investing decisions anyways. Like, you go on there, they have two pundits maybe with differing market viewpoints, and then you just say, well, regardless of their opinions on valuation, it really doesn't matter because it, it, it shouldn't dictate any of your investment decisions. You'd get kicked off in, like, 12 seconds. Right. <laughs> I've always said if, if, you know, when you see that ticker tape going by, if, you know, it should be like a surgeon's general warning. About every 90 seconds, it should be mandated that it says, Nothing that happens in the next 30 minutes is going to have any impact on the next 30 years of your life. Just buy index funds, have a balanced portfolio, make sure it's aligned with your allocation. If you can't figure that out, find an advisor that can help you do that. And just go enjoy life and just recognize that if you want to achieve potential premium returns, at least that have been historically uh, delivered really by only one asset class, and that's the ownership of the great companies of America and the world, guess what? It's going to be unpredictable in the near term. And that's the deal. And the reason, the only reason, in my view, there have been premium returns of ownership of the great companies of the world, as opposed to buying bonds and CDs, is exactly because of that premium fluctuation and unpredictability you have to put up with. So I just wanted to start out with that just because when I see major pundits uh, and I get I start to get asked about it, I thought, oh, you know, there's probably three or four people out there that, you know, have read that or got excited about it. So so I think we're going to move on, guys. I know I want one of the things I want to talk about. And I don't know how long we'll talk about this particular subject, but uh, my son, Daniel, uh, who's now in our Plano, Texas office, and uh, we do have a second office in Plano, Texas. Texas is booming, so it seems like a very attractive area. And we're making some progress down there, so I'm happy about that. But he wrote a blog about the eight reasons people seek the advice of a professional. And, uh, you know, we'd like to be a, a, kind of an expert in everything, but that's not possible. Uh, and, and no one advisor is really an expert in all things financial, and people recognize that. So they sometimes they want to seek advice from, uh, advice from different experts, different fields. And one of the things that... Uh, uh, he wrote about the, uh, get, how to give financial advice that people will follow. A uh, Canadian neuropsychologist and executive director of the, well, Dr. Mora Summers mentions eight reasons people seek professional advice. And Daniel brought that into his kind of talking about that in his post that you can read on our website at rudywealth.com. So we want to talk about a few of those today, guys. And the first one was reducing complexity. David, what, uh, I see this theme, I'm sorry about my sloppy delivery there because I was trying to do a little reading of, I'll be prefacing Daniel's blog. Uh, but this reducing complexity issue, guys, is one that seems to be a real common theme that walks through our doors on, a, on any given day. Uh, what's your take on that, Dave? Well, I think it's kind of a self-fulfilling thing because anyone who goes to see an advisor is probably the type of person who doesn't they just don't want to do things on their own. You know, they're not a do-it-yourself type person. And a lot of that does get down to, well, there's all these questions and things involved in financial planning, specifically retirement planning, typically when they're coming into our office. And they really don't want to spend the time or energy or, or just they just are worried that they're not going to be able to figure it out on their own. So you start thinking of all the things you need to know. It's, okay, well, when can I retire? There's a lot of stuff that goes into answering that question. How much can I withdraw from my investment portfolio without having to worry I'm going to run out at some point? How do I fund long-term care expenses? Should I buy insurance? Should I self-fund? If I'm self-funding, how much do I need to set aside each year to be, make sure there's money left over there? How am I going to cover health care expenses if I'm retiring before 65 and I don't have health insurance available through my employer? Then Those there's always Social Security claiming when and how do I claim Social Security. That's a huge one. Exactly. Um, if we delay Social Security, what do we do between now and then to basically supplement my income? Don't you think that's a, on that one issue, I just want to take a sidetrack a little bit here. Uh, when it comes, you know, people are frequently told, we frequently tell our clients, that, look, at least one of you is probably going to 
delay your social security claiming until age 70. I think there tends to be this intuitive confusion there when you talk to people because they think, well, what am I going to do till then? I want to retire now and I'm 62. That's why I was thinking about taking social security at 62. And I think that's one of the bigger challenges that people have is how do we smooth out all these moving parts from cash flow standpoint? Well, my pension doesn't start for four years after retirement. Uh, Social security, now I'm being told that maybe I should as the higher earner, maybe I don't claim my social security for a variety of reasons. Uh, the much higher uh, return you get, which is just fantastic, the longevity insurance it provides, and actually the additional longevity insurance for a spouse, surviving spouse. I think, you know, it's that, it, it's kind of counterintuitive. It means, well, I, how do I smooth out these cash flows? And I think that's one of the bigger mathematical challenges people face in their mind. I, I know that when prospective clients walk in the door, and we have that initial meeting and we start kind of noodling about whether they're financially prepared for retirement and they give me all the numbers to deal with. Even It's even sometimes a challenge for me trying to think about, okay, if they're going to delay social security, because I like them to be able to walk out within 100 or $200 a month before I do any real fancy calculations. This is probably what your spending looks like in retirement. And, and again, one of the biggest challenges for me, and I've done this for 35 years, is kind of trying to put a number initially on can I retire? What would my expected lifestyle look like if I make these delays in pensions? Or And then another one I'm thinking of, one of these other moving parts, which is frequently happens to people around here, is do I take a lump sum pension or do I take the actual defined benefit in a monthly pension? So there's a lot of them. So there's a lot of complexity and it, and it sounds to me like you know, that's really what's getting to that is not only do I want to simplify life, I may just find this to be too complex and it may just explode my mind. Yeah, right. On, on top of the subject of financial planning and social security having so many nuances that it, that it can be complex, we also see a lot of clients who come in who after maybe 30, 40 years of investing in various um, ventures or companies or mutual funds, they have what, Paul, you've called before the junk drawer of investments. Yeah. And I haven't used that one in a while. I'm it's glad you reminded while. me. Yeah. So, and and I know you've brought up it's not to be offensive in any way. It's it's this mishmash of things you've acquired over the years, like your junk drawer in your home, where you just have that one place you know to go to to find something that's probably missing. And but, why does everybody call it a junk drawer? I, I don't mean, know. That's, that's, that's universal. It, I mean, since I was a kid, we had a junk drawer. And everybody I've ever met, everybody has a junk drawer, and everyone knows where to go. They but, do. You can't find anything in there, but you know that it might be in, in there. there. So. And it's just one of those things, too, with, in, with investing. You've accumulated various things that maybe uh, one set of investments through one company zigs, another one zags, another one goes up, another one goes down. They're not aligned. They're not working cohesively together. And that works against you, too, financially. If you get all of your investments pointed at the right direction, aligned for the same targets and goals, you can pick up some return because you're not incurring extra costs from services or investments working against you. I'm Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On The Money Radio Show. I'm here with Ryan Repko, who's a financial advisor with Rudy Wealth Management, and I'm here with certified financial planner professional and retirement income certified professional David Rudy. Again, you can call us with your questions at 356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. The next one, and, and this is a big one, I'm not so sure it isn't you know, the one that is the hardest on people, uh, is to take action. You actually take action action and do something about this and not procrastinate uh, editorial emphasis from me you know this procrastination seems to be just like everything else in human nature i'll start working out tomorrow i'll start watching my diet tomorrow i'll i'll make new year's resolutions and i'm going to try to keep them actually taking action um ryan what's your take on that i mean where you know where, where do you see that fitting into all this eight reasons people choose an advisor and I think it just comes down to human nature is that when any any time there's a big decision at hand or the implications for something are large, it causes you to drag your feet because naturally you may be more hesitant uh, to maybe jump into a decision too quickly or one that could have a lot of adverse repercussions if you make the wrong decision. So for many folks, setting up your, your finances to make sure that they're going the way that they should be or me setting up a meeting in the first place just to even meet with an advisor, not necessarily even to hire one. Uh, but just to even have the, the, the strength to say, I'm going to put myself out there on the line, open myself up maybe to some 
uh, things that I'm not necessarily proud of in my financial life. Maybe I've made mistakes and I have to to put those in front of someone who I, in my mind, might say they might could be judging. Maybe it's embarrassing. Precisely. Uh, do you think that's one of the reasons people might not make that first phone call to actually make the phone or the or get online? In our case, at Rudy Wealth Management, you can just, you know, you do it online. I think... For some reason, I think that's one of the bigger impediments to people actually, because because when we're going to get into this later, uh, people will ask us, "Hey, who's your biggest competition in town?" And well, you will almost universally say, "People doing nothing." Mm-hmm. Um, and so it relates and circles back to that doing nothing. And I'm wondering if that just taking that first step isn't more difficult than we might even think it is. And maybe part of it is that you you are probably going to eventually have to disclose some some investment mistakes that you either deem as a mistake or maybe even embarrassing, but an advisor can learn a lot about that. Well, why did you make that investment? And how did you feel about it? And would you do it again? And you know, what, what would you do to avoid it? It's part of that conversation. It's very helpful from the, trying to figure out the psychological puzzle of the client. You know, and a, another kind of interesting aspect to taking action that we could probably talk about that might help people out is actually getting clients or actually getting you to invest in the portfolio that you should be invested in. And a lot of times this issue arises when people inherit a lump sum of money or they take a lump sum from a a pension, like a defined benefit pension, but they take the lump sum instead. They have this lump sum of money that really needs to be invested probably at least partially in the stock market, let's say, just for the sake of this conversation. Yeah, most people need some type of balance in their portfolio. A lot of people have trouble pulling the trigger on that, especially when the market's at all-time highs and they're hearing people say, you know the market's overvalued and it's poised for a crash. Right, or it's got to it's got to go down someday. It, doesn't that almost? It's kind of like, uh, and, and not only that. Sometimes even intraday, you know, you'll have a meeting at ten in the morning with a client, or you somebody asks you your advice in the morning, and you say, "Oh yeah, you belong in," and I would get it in today, part of it, uh, before three p.m. because that's when the market closes. That's not a timing issue. It's just saying, yeah, it really belongs in there. Get it in there, and they'll say, "Well, okay, I'm, I'm going to go do that," and. And I've always said, you, you know, this is one of the two things that keep people from being successful. And I tell people, look, you, you know, you can do it yourself unless, you, you know, uh, there's one or two reasons why you shouldn't do it. And one of them is, are you the type of person that is absolutely going to go do it? But then you go home and you're about to make the phone call and you're watching the TV and you see, oh, oh, the Dow's down 400 points and everybody's all excitable. And you tell yourself, well, I'll do it tomorrow. And then tomorrow just becomes today again. And there's always a reason to put it off. And I try to tell people, I have never met, nor will I ever meet anybody that doesn't wish they would have done it when today was 1984 when I got into this business. Uh, and, and that's kind of the point there. Yeah, Ryan. And, and, and that alludes to a good point is that I think that, it, that one of the biggest advantages of having an advisor is they will hold you accountable. And they won't allow you to linger and to lament over a decision. They'll say, okay, here's what we think we need to do. We should do this by this date. And this is how our plan is going to be to get there. And so you have a plan. It's it's actionable. It's not, I'm going to wait and see. Uh, I'm just not quite sure yet. No, an advisor will take that burden off your shoulders for you. And that's an emotional burden. It's uh, a huge this, burden. This, this is a darn if I do, darn if I don't. Because how many times, guys, and you'll hear me say this to a prospective client, because I'm all about human nature and human nature is a failed investor. And I'll say, you know, let me guess. You feel like that person that could be the author of the book. And, Paul, you don't understand. I could be the author of this book. How come investments work until I buy them? Everybody has that fear. Wouldn't you agree? You better agree. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's where you think of, like, two solutions. One is um, just from a financial planning standpoint, I always tell people, look, your plan is built so that even if the market does go down immediately after you start investing, you're still going to be fine. Otherwise, it would be a terrible plan. It's like, okay, well, as long as we don't have a bear market in the next few years, you're going to be fine. It's like, well, that's a terrible plan. A plan should should work even if what these clients are worried about actually comes to fruition. And then the other thing that you can do to deal with this type of issue and get people to actually take action is dollar cost average or suggest dollar cost averaging in. Even though it's likely going to cost them money, I look at it like, well, that's not as costly as them being stuck on the sidelines for Correct. the next, however, you know, block of time. Because yeah, you don't really like to do that psychologically. You're you're the type of person, Dave, and you might be the same way, Ryan. That you know, if they belong fifty percent of their portfolio in uh, in the great companies of America and the world, some people call it the stock market. 
uh, you want them really to do it today by 3 p.m. You don't like it when I give into them and I'll say, look, we're going to make a substantial down payment on that allocation to the great companies of America and the world. And then we'll take the next six months or the next block of time and we'll do it on regular increments. And by the way, just so you know and you don't get surprised, the minute this, w that the stock market goes down like you, like you fear that it will, I'm going to speed that up and I'm going to do it at my leisure. I'm not going to call you. I'm not going to ask you about it. We're not going to discuss this. I think that is one thing that might make us a little different than some advisors. doesn't make us better. I'm talking about a difference here. I think of the more of the order-taking type of advisors, you know, the 1-800 and the kind of more like the robo-advisors. They're not really going to arm wrestle you. And they're not going to look you in the eyes and say, well, if you don't do it, then we're not hanging out together, which means I don't care if you're paying me $5,000 a year. I'm going to let you walk out of the door because we're just not getting along here and you're paying me to tell you to do what you need to do, not what you want to do. The next one is to save time. And I think this becomes a big one. I don't think people are think about it as much the first day of retirement or thinking about going into retirement. But I've noticed uh, for doing this for three and a half decades that there comes a point, and it's usually not too long after people initially retire, where all of a sudden their time is much more important to them than even their money. And they're really glad to have somebody save them that time of research. Not that I'm not sure what that would do for people, but just the contemplation. So saving time, that's kind of a big one, isn't it? Well, and I think more so than even the time of managing the investment portfolio, it's the time that it would take to develop the expertise you need to create a sound financial plan or retirement plan if you're retired. Like I said, there's a lot of critical issues and, th and questions that you have to answer in order to build really a, a proper retirement plan and maximize your lifestyle and make sure you don't risk running out of money at some point during your lifetime. If you're going to be able to do that on your own, and, and I, I would say that the vast majority of people are capable of doing that on their own, if they're willing to spend hours and hours learning how to answer those questions properly, learning how to deal with these issues in the optimal manner. And the fact of the matter is, most people would rather not spend hours and hours reading finance books or reading, you know, going through an education course on how to develop their own retirement plan. And that's where it gets down to, okay, well, how do you want to spend your time? Do you want to spend it, you know, if you like finance and you like learning about retirement planning, then you're a good candidate for learning how to do things on your own and be a do-it-yourself investor. If you're not, you should probably pay someone else to do it because if you try to do it on your own, you're probably going to mess something up. I think that makes sense. Um, you know, I see so many do-it-yourself type of websites or people that promote this idea. And now, I, I, you know, obviously I'm biased. We get paid only when people engage us. So I'm just going to admit it. But if I was retired tomorrow, you guys don't smile so much when you, you contemplate me retired because <laughs> I'm not. Uh, and I told somebody, I'd say, look, here's the deal. It takes four characteristics to be able to do it on your own. Brain power is just really one of them, and I'm, I'll get into that. First of all, you got to want to do it, okay? Uh, and, and then in my experience of all the thousands of people I've met, maybe one out of 10 really enjoy it enough to want to do it. You have to have a really strong background in math, a real deep dive. I'm not talking about simple spreadsheets and understanding just fractions. I'm talking about really understanding probabilities, joint probabilities, and how to deal with that. Uh, maybe one out of 10 people, if they were honest, would qualify for that. The third thing you need is a really good sense of history, of financial history, and understanding where we've come as human beings and the psychological problems that creep up. And you go back to the South Seas bubbles or the tulip mania 350 years ago or the railroad mania in, in Britain in the 1800s. Uh, we've, we've had some bizarre bubbles historically time. So the story of risk in bubbles, maybe one out of 10 people, if even that, have that. And finally, this fourth one, and we talked about that earlier, it's doing it heck or high water. In other words, executing your plan regardless of what's going on maybe one out of 10. Well, if you have to have four things that are one out of 10 probabilities, that's one out of 10,000 people that might be able to do it themselves. So investing, can people do it themselves? Yes, you could go to Fidelity or Vanguard. 
you can buy the total U.S. stock market for next to nothing or nothing in, in the case of Fidelity. But when you really start thinking about the complexity of putting all, connecting all these dots at once, I think it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a bunch to deal with. So intellect isn't enough of them. I'm going to get back because the next one, and we're going to go to a text here in a second, is it's not only time consuming, but anyway, I just kind of mentioned it, but some people just plain don't want to do it or find it boring. I want to get to that, guys, uh, in a minute. But we have a text that says, my friend will turn 66 in the middle of November. I should probably read the whole text before I start reading it in case they called me a fathead. <laughs> she planned So a uh, friend will return 66 in the middle of November. She planned to retire at the end of the year, but now she says she wants to start receiving Social Security the month of her birthday, but continue working until the end of the year. She heard you can earn as much money as you want. Is that true? Thanks. So guys, once you're, so there's this, and we're mixed, we're kind of, there's a couple issues here. One is it's not true unless, I think in this person, you guys are going to tell me it's true because they're at full retirement age, but prior to full retirement age, there is a hurdle that if you earn beyond 15 or 16,000, then you, you don't really <clears throat> lose permanently a dollar of benefits for every two or three dollars that you earn. But once you're at full retirement, that does shift, does it not? Right. So once you hit full retirement age, then that reduction goes away for basically earned income. So it sounds like, and I'm trying to think what full retirement age would be for a current 66-year-old, but I think it but would it's be 66. 66 in some months. Yeah. So just make sure that she's past full retirement age. Verify that. And if she is, then yeah, she can earn as much as she wants and then get the Social Security in addition to that. Yeah, so that's good. If I was going to do it, though, I would say if I'm still working and earning an income, I'm going to delay Social Security to get that 8% increase until I actually retire. Because also it depends if you're going to be out and earning, then your provisional income. We can talk about that in a minute. We're going to go to a call. But now it might be, yes, you're going to get some Social Security, but you're going to pay 50 or 85% of it may be taxed. Right. And, you know, so this is something you really want to think through. Of maybe it's better, to, is what you're getting to, is to delay and get that near 8% real return annually for delaying. And I think you really want to think through that for that reason, too, is, is that income plus any other outside income going to, like IRA distributions that are taxable, uh, going to make cause your Social Security to be taxable, whereas if you postpone it, maybe down the road, you can manipulate your income in such a way or organize your income in such a way to minimize or eliminate that taxation. We're going to go to Dave on line one. Dave, welcome to On the Money. How can we help you? Uh, could you um, break it down to maybe the simplest common denominator about defined benefits versus defined contributions, the way I understand it? Defined benefits means basically the taxpayers in part pick up the tab or defined contributions, uh, you know, it's on the individual. Okay. Uh, guys, that's a probably, I'm glad you, um, Dave, do you want to hang on or? Yes, please. Uh, okay. So uh, I'm going to let you guys answer this uh, in the simplest terms. Now, I, I think the only correction I want to make is that, so, you know, taxpayers may be paying it, so to speak, or it may just be a private corporation that's, you know, paying that defined benefit. You, when you guys want to tackle that? Yeah, I, I think the names kind of actually give away the difference. So when I think of a defined benefit plan, just as the I'm name... I'm talking about public sector pension. Okay, yep. so let's, let's take the public sector. So the way I think of that is they're defining the benefit that you're going to receive, the employer is. So it, instead of, like, it might help. I think I'll have an easier time if I explain defined contribution first. If you think of a defined contribution plan, the employee, or I guess it can be the employer, Both. you're making a contribution, There's n then it's going to, the portfolio value is going to grow over time and it's going to be what it's going to be. They're not promising any specific benefit at retirement. Right. A defined benefit is kind of the opposite where they're promising a specific benefit at retirement. And then, you know, each, each defined benefit pension is going to be a little bit different. If you think of like the U of I, I know, you know, they withhold 8% from your paycheck and that's going to be help, used to help fund your, your pension. But then essentially at retirement, based on your number of years of service and whatnot, um, you're going to get a defined benefit based on that. Which is usually typically a monthly pension amount yeah. uh, that in the case of a lot of the state of Illinois type pensions would increase at 3% per year. Yep. And Dave, one thing you can think of when you hear defined benefit, you can generally assume that's a pension or a pension type program. 
defined contribution is usually more like a traditional 401k program um, just to try to keep some things simple. There's there's nuance, different different types of defined contribution plans and defined pension plans, which is probably beyond the scope of even this conversation. So that's why I tried to steer away from that and try to say, you know, generally speaking, those are the kind of two ways things work. What about if, um, say, for example, uh, uh, an employee for the University of Illinois belongs to the SERS plan, if I'm not mistaken? Yes. So what if, how does it work if, and if I understand it right, that SERS are ineligible for participating in Social Security? You mean they don't pay into it while they're working under the SERS system? Right. Yes. So what if, what if SERS has told them in the past that we you got you shall pay into Social Security instead of SERS from some of your earnings as a uh, University of Illinois employee? So instead of getting credit with your SERS, you're paying into Social Security. And so, therefore, SERS is, uh, the state of Illinois is exempt from uh, paying those uh, pension obligations, but you get Social Security, but your Social Security is penalized because you receive a pension from the SERS employment. Yes. What's happened is that I think we lost the pension plan, the state of Illinois has said, okay, you can't contribute to the yeah. public sector pension system from your earnings for some of it and yet and social security so therefore the state's alleviated from that responsibility is passed on to the federal government so your state pension is diminished and your federal pension is diminished yeah. is that something you guys handle or do you need an attorney for that well that's not something we would handle that's an, an issue you'd have to take up with somebody else uh I I would think a, a, a labor attorney, maybe. Uh, I'm not really sure who would ha- handle that. Well, what happens question. if they, the pension system says it never happened in the first place? Well, you know, you're in a you're in a league way outside of what we deal with. So I'm sorry, okay. I can't help you there. It sounds like it's kind of toxic to you. Well, no, it's not toxic. It's just something that uh, you know you have this particular issue. Uh, well, maybe maybe others it. have it, and it it's just not years. something I can solve, and it's not something I'm going to try. I'm going to so, ask you to solve it. I'm going to ask you some guidance how to get get through it. I, I mean, I gave you my answer. I'm not really sure where I would go for that. I would first speak with maybe someone who's a labor attorney and, and now say. Now we know why Illinois is at the bottom of pension fraud. <laughs> for lots of reasons. <laughs> yeah, they they've you know he's I've heard him you know call penny and all that and i understand his frustration but it's not something that i care to deal with it really doesn't There's impact nothing we can do about we, it. we don't have any clients that really that have come to us with that particular issue and i've been doing this a long time i know it's out there uh i know there's some frustration about it now in the most general sense <clears throat> you know people that have worked for a number of years in the social under social security system and then they work for quite a period of time in the under the SERS system uh, benefit system they do kind of get dinged uh, some think it's for the right reason, some think it's for the wrong reason. So there are a couple of issues. The WEP, which is the windfall elimination provision, can impact Social Security. So there are some issues, uh, and some people can defend it, and some people won't defend it. And if and you that, have enough years in the in the social paying into Social Security, then that windfall elimination provision doesn't really affect you. Right. If you have social, thirty years in, so it, that, that doesn't even. Yeah. So the more years you're under the Social Security system, so there's all these kinds of little issues that do pop up. Those types of issues are very frequently. You, you know, we deal with those frequently, and we try to make the most sense out of those. You know, look, you, there's only so many moves in the checkerboard most of the time. I mean, you either worked you worked a number of years outside of it. It's it's by a table formula of how much of your a first bend point gets dinged and you know right. it's not fun to find that out uh you know because a lot of people aren't even aware of it but it's certainly it's an issue well the, we're gonna dave we're gonna go to jim online too jim thanks for uh holding on yes how are we doing this doing great jim hey i just wanted to add to what the last caller was saying as somebody who has been affected by this very thing uh when i got a pension from the u of i all that money I paid in for all those years in Social Security, hundreds of thousands of dollars, it's just gone. The government has just taken it. That's one of the reasons why I get a better pension from the U of I. So I it's disingenuous to say that uh, 
people get both. Um, I know people that were 28 years, came up just two years short of having the 30 in for Social Security, and the government still took pretty much 75% of No, they don't. If they work 28 years, uh, it's they might get dinged 15 or so percent. From their you first bank point. You can look at the table. You can you can look at the table. It's it's right. published. It's 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 available to anybody that wants to look. Uh, so it goes from anywhere from twenty to thirty years. I know at twenty six years, you get seventy percent of your first bend point instead of everybody else gets ninety percent, and that's at twenty six years. The number only goes up from that. So uh, you know it's 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 not going to be. There is at twenty eight years, you're going to have some impact but it's a relatively mild impact. Easy for me to say, it's not my money, but I'm sure the person on the end of it that's worked 28 years doesn't feel like it's mild, even if it's a few hundred bucks or a couple hundred dollars a month. But it's not, from a magnitude standpoint, it's not as big as you're trying to make it out. Right, and and for the listeners too, the best thing you can do is if you fall into this situation in your own life where you've paid into Social Security for a number of years, um, but you're gonna be receiving a government pension, Go on Social Security's website and use their WEP-adjusted calculator. And what you do is you actually plug in your historical earnings for your uh, where you paid into Social Security, and then you tell them what your pension amount is, and it's going to calculate your win the, the benefits you'll actually receive after adjusting for the windfall elimination provision. Right. So uh, look, I understand the frustration of those callers, and I think they're mad at us for not being able to give them the answer. But we don't have the answer. But I know one thing, if someone works 28 years, they don't get dinged that much. That I've, I've been doing this too long, I know better. Uh, but it certainly causes some people to be sore. But uh, you know, there's a lot of people, on the other hand, this isn't me, that say, well, there's nothing for those people to whine about. I mean, they're getting their 3% uh, in, in COLA cost of living adjustment each year. So you know, this underfunded, there's a lot of political dynamics and people you know, outside of the system think that everybody who gets a SERS pension is just rich, fat cats. It's not true. Uh, you know, they negotiated their 3% and, you know, it's, you know, there's a good reason to think that they shouldn't take my deal away. That's one of the reasons I was in that system. I'm not, I'm not arguing pro or con. I'm just talking about, so, and then it comes to social security. It's just a sore spot. And, uh, you know, in in many ways, people, you know, the information was there to know about it, that there is that impact on people that did work outside of the system. The reasoning behind the windfall elimination provision, as Dr. Gertz mentioned last time, is What's going to happen is you're going to look like a low-income person even though you weren't a low-income person because you weren't paying into Social Security all those years. Well, why does that matter? It matters because Social Security is designed to replace a higher percentage of your income the lower your income is. And that's what, when you're talking about bend points, right. that's basically what you're referring to is, look, it's going to replace the first 90% of X dollars of your and that's average the biggest index one. monthly that, that, earnings. And that's the biggest chunk, and that's why they focus on that first bend point, right? Exactly. So what would happen is they're saying, okay, well, you're looking like a low-income person that should get 90% of this uh, income that you did pay into Social Security right. back in benefits, but really you didn't have a low income, and you don't deserve to get 90%. So in other words, back. a person might have a $10,000 a month pension, say just under a SERS or well, forget it. It's really independent of SERS. Any of the systems that are that basically are joined with, integrated with Social Security. And uh, so they have a $10,000 a month. And maybe they worked five years or 10 years for Social Security at the beginning of their life and where they really weren't even that high of earners. But like you're saying, then on paper, if you were just looking at their Social Security statement in a calculator, you'd say, well, these people should get almost they should get the biggest benefit because they're not getting much of a benefit to begin with. And so it artificially looks as if you are a lower income person when in fact you may be in the top 10% of income people. And, and then and Dr. Fred has mentioned that, uh, and and it's, it's almost sensible. It's not, it's frustrating if you're on the other side of it, but when you mention that and you say, well, yeah, because it kind of skews it. Because if you step back, as you said, Social Security is trying to replace for the lower earners a much bigger bet percentage of their income, their lower income. Yeah, and, and that's the rationale. And at the end of the day, there's nothing we can really do about it. The rules are what they are. So, you know, when we're building retirement plans for clients, the main thing is to make sure that we spot that issue if it's going to play a role in their plan and then calculate what their benefit will actually be. Because if you look at their social security statement, it's going to say a bigger number. Right. Because and the that statements be a pro- you receive in the mail or online, 
they don't take into account that windfall elimination provision. Right. And, and that could be a problem because, you know, you think, hey, I'm going to, before you cuss at the boss on a Friday afternoon and retire, you might want to. <laughs> you might want to check with the financial advisors that there aren't something that you're missing. And I think that's what the big frustration is for so many people is they, they're about ready to hit the button to retire. They think that they know what their expectations will be for the money they'll receive through Social Security. And then all of a sudden, it's like the rug has been pulled out from underneath them. And then it's like that's a gut check that you weren't accounted for, accounting for. And a, a good financial advisor, like David said, will spot that in advance, educate you on it, and then give you an expectation going forward. But... That's why I think so many folks do get so upset. Right, because you might see that first bend point, you know, that's you get 90% of it. But if you work fewer than 20 years, and so, so you worked 18 years and, and, you know, covered under Social Security, you know, you're only going to get 40% instead of 90%, and that's the biggest bend right. point. So it could be a pretty good number under some circumstances. Well, and I think the other thing is if you think of how it's calculated as you just described it, it's never going to go completely away. No, it's not. Uh, this isn't an issue that's going to go away and uh, which is why you know uh, a lot of people that that start with the university now that come to me and ask me well which which plan do I accept you know the plans have changed the pension and the, and the 403b you know the self-managed plan and all, all those things uh, partic particularly the the, the the defined benefit side has really changed quite a bit and if it's me here's the paradox for me trying to give the advice if it's me I'm going to take and I'm just starting at the University of Illinois today, I'm going to take the self-managed plan for me. And the reason I'm going to do that is because I'm going to be 100% equity. I can buy the Fidelity, you know, total U.S. stock market fund for essentially free. And I'm going to behave properly. Uh, I'm pretty sure that for me, I'm going to come out ahead, right? That's no guarantee that I will, but I'm pretty sure I will. Give it enough time and, and, and the right behavior. But I could tell that to somebody and they A, they may not, invest it the way I think they need to do it if they're going to pick that plan and they might not beha behave as well. Uh, so that's, that's one of these dilemmas when we talk about, you know, university-type plans and those situations. Uh, don't you think that Social Security is probably one of the areas where people probably understand the least when it comes to claiming? Uh, For sure, know? but it's because it's super confusing, I mean, and convoluted the way they calculate stuff and and I don't know where people would ever learn that in their life unless they just did a bunch of research on their own. And then you have the, the weird extra provisions and then you have different rules for divorced spouses and all these things that it just is a little bit overwhelming. For I know people. that Daniel met with somebody. I, I met with him, too. But Daniel did some behind the scenes work uh, on it with a, a widower, uh, you know, about a year ago. And, you know. He really wants to retire in the next, you know, probably this year if they if he can. But there was just a little bit of a shortfall of pulling the trigger for this year. And Daniel said, well, you know, you get survivor spouse. He says, no, I was told that I wouldn't for whatever reason. Daniel said, I'm pretty darn sure you're, you're eligible. And it's probably going to be a pretty decent number. Long story short, in fact, it was a significant monthly number. And he was able to claim that spousal or the survivor benefit. That was the difference maker between working another two or three years and maybe probably by the end of this year, that person. So Social Security is, particularly when you can go, this isn't a knock on the folks at the Social Security office. It gets back to your statement. It's so convoluted and there's so many rules and complex, complex, uh, complexity, complexities. 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 Couldn't get yeah. the word out, guys. Uh, we should do the show on Fridays. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> better on Fridays. That... I mean, how many times have we had clients or prospective clients that were told one thing several times that mm -hmm. this is what your benefit's going to be or not going to be? Well, we, we push it real hard and say, no, here's the law. Here's the rule. And, you know, you can usually get it into the right hands where they go, oh, yeah, you're right. And, and they're not, they're literally, they're not trying to keep people from getting their benefit. It's just so complex. Right. Uh, and this is an area, I think, that we really help people on on the front end because when you start thinking about that social security benefit showing up every month year after year with an inflation benefit now we can argue about whether it's a proper inflation benefit or not it's a significant you know and it's how often have you guys heard well it's uh eighteen hundred dollars a month it's not that much and you start thinking about how much money would i have to have in treasury inflation protected securities to generate an inflation adjusted eighteen hundred dollars a month for the rest of my life it'd be in the millions 
I think if they had a bucket of money with millions on it, they would look at it as not an insignificant benefit. It's a huge benefit. Uh, it's, it's really generally the reason most people can afford to retire. Um, now, for about half the folks, Social Security is kind of defines their life. For a good number of them beyond that, it's a largest percentage of their income sources for life. But for the people that walk through our door that have accumulated assets, uh, it's still a significant component. It may not be the dominant component. That's probably going to come from other pensions or their assets. But Social Security is one of those areas that you can't be too careful. and You don't want to be too cute with it either. I think you, you really want to find an excellent investment advisor out there that really has the technological tools that really break that complexity barrier. See, I got that word out. I knew I could. <laughs> Um, so, you know, we have just another couple of minutes, guys. Uh, anything else you want to touch about? We have other things that we'll bring into next time. Uh, but, you know, we hit saves time for people. Uh, you know, just the knowledge and the complexities. Yeah, Ryan. Yeah, you could just add as something that kind of David alluded to is just it gives you a, a, an enhanced confidence level if you potentially reach out to an advisor. You don't have to worry that, am I doing it right? You don't have to second guess yourself. Am I taking enough? Am I taking too much? Maybe am I going to run out of money? It just alleviates you from that that concern of constantly second guessing and wondering if you're doing the right thing. And I think you need to be careful with the advisor you choose. <clears throat> we have a number of great advisors in this town, and you just really want to ask them the number one couple of things you want to ask them if you're going to reach out to advisors. How do you get paid? Are you a fiduciary? There's nothing wrong if they're not. You just want to know, and you just want to understand the deal going in to see if there's any conflicts that maybe you're not comfortable with. There's always going to be some type of conflict of interest out there with any type of advisor. Uh, don't let anybody tell you that there's a conflict-free advice world out there. And there's a lot of really good online tools for people. Uh, but just the Social Security claiming and hiring an advisor, it's a big deal. Uh, most everybody's better off for having done that. Uh, guys, we're going to be back in a couple of weeks. And everybody enjoy their day. And thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On The Money. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.